We went down a street and turned a corner. We went down the street and turned the corner. And there, it seemed, there was the castle. Always, if you knew, if you knew how to go, you could walk down a street, the daylight street, that twisted about and ended in grass. There it was, always, the castle. Remote, unshadowed, childish immortal, with two calm giants guarding the portal. Stiff in the sunset, strong to defend, stood castle safety at the world's end. Oh, castle safety, love without crying, honey without cloying, death without dying, hate and heartbreak, all were forgot there. We always woke, we never got there. Fairy Tale by Joy Davidman. I am Patty Callahan, and this is Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis, an in-depth exploration into the improbable love story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis. You'll hear the stories behind the stories of the best-selling novel Becoming Mrs. Lewis, along with interviews from some of the foremost experts on their lives and love. These women just knew that they had to exercise almost dramatic, excessive pronunciations of their will in order to get any attention at all. It makes her so much like Dorothy Sayers. Sayers wanted to be known for the quality of her work, the integrity of her work. And in fact, when people would interview her and ask information about her personal life, she says, it's not about me, it is about the integrity of the work. That imperiousness, which you see in both Dorothy and Joy, had to do with the recognition that they'll only get heard if they're imperious. One of my favorite stories about Dorothy Sayers is when they wanted to change her radio plays to make them softer and more childlike. She was incensed that this was about the quality of her work, and she just took her contract, and rather than saying, well, I'm not going to honor it. She tore it up in little tiny bits, put it in an envelope, and mailed it back to BBC Radio. Episode 4, Why Joy? Why did C.S. Lewis choose Joy Davidman? With Dr. Crystal Hurd and Dr. Crystal Downing. So often we wonder, why did C.S. Lewis marry so late in life? Why Joy? Today, we will talk about the powerful women who came before Joy in C.S. Lewis's life. First, we'll talk with Dr. Crystal Downing, along with her husband. She is the co-director of the Marion E. Wade Center in Wheaton, Illinois. She was the Distinguished Professor of English and Film Studies at Messiah College. Crystal has published nearly 80 essays on topics ranging from the Amish to Jane Austen. And her literary criticism appears in eight critical editions of canonical texts. She is widely published, and her first book is about Dorothy Sayers, a fascinating woman that we believe prepared C.S. Lewis for Joy Davidman. Hello, Crystal. So lovely, as always, to talk to you from the Wade Center. 
How did you first hear about Joy Davidman? As you're the co-director of the Wade Center with your husband, Dr. David Downing, I'm assuming it's connected to that research and writing. And since David is a C.S. Lewis scholar, I learned about Joy through him. But I first got more intensely interested in her when we watched productions of Shadowlands. There was a Josh Ackland production of Shadowlands. And then, of course, then there was the Anthony Hopkins production. And then we talked about the problematic interpretation of their relationship that is displayed in Shadowlands. Your work on Dorothy Sayers has opened my heart to another brilliant and fiery woman from this same time. When I read about Dorothy through your eyes, I often compare her to Joy. They seem to have some really similar personality traits, and Lewis is quoted as saying he liked Dorothy for her zest and her edge in conversation. Dorothy exposed Lewis to a woman's mind and personality. I would love to talk to you a little bit about how you see Dorothy and Joy's similarities and how you think Dorothy prepared Lewis to meet Joy. Well, both were extraordinarily brilliant women who were born at a time where opportunities for women were almost nil. Here, Dorothy Sayers went through Oxford University, did all the exact same work that males did. In fact, did superior work than her male peers, but she didn't get a degree from Oxford because they didn't think women should have college degrees. And after the fact, in fact, after the Great War, they started giving degrees, but I think even that was cynical because the Great War devastated Oxford University, so they thought, well, if we got more women here, that would bring in income. I'm being a little cynical. (laughs) Well, sometimes we have to be a little cynical. In your essay, The Divine Comedy of C.S. Lewis and Dorothy Sayers, You say that Sayers exposes Lewis to the power of a woman's mind and personality. So when Joy comes along, there's almost this recognition of a woman like that. Yeah. Both of them prickled against cultural constructions of gender, and Joy assumed that, well, what every woman needs to do and wants to do is become a a wife and mother. And then for any woman who is a writer, they inevitably understand what Virginia Woolf was saying in A Room of One's Own. To be a writer, you need a room of one's own. But especially as a mother, how you have all these responsibilities. And so I I even think this is behind... Joy leaving her sons behind for three months just to escape. And she kind of used the excuse of her health, but just feeling imprisoned and by the constructions of gender. And I think for both of them, this explains why other people who just look at them from the outside to go back to tools Thoughts in a woodshed? Meditation Meditations in a woodshed, in a tool shed. Those who look at them versus with them. These women just knew that they had to exercise almost dramatic, excessive 
pronunciations of their will in order to get any attention at all. So one of the stories I love about Joy, I just finished reading Abby Santa Maria's biography, Joy, which is fascinating. Joy was sitting in a restaurant with 14 other people in New York City, and some African-Americans come in and the restaurant won't seat them. And so Joy said to all the 14 people, we are not staying in this restaurant. And she just made them all get up and leave because of the racism in this restaurant. So that imperiousness, which you see in both Dorothy and Joy, had to do with the recognition that they'll only get heard if they're imperious. One of my favorite stories about Dorothy Sayers is when they wanted to change her radio plays to make them softer and more childlike. She was incensed that this was about the quality of her work, and she just took her contract, and rather than saying, well, I'm not going to honor it, she tore it up in little tiny bits, put it in an envelope, and mailed it back to BBC Radio. And it's almost as though they both recognized, unless they're almost histrionic about what they do, they're not going to get attention. But then other people who are used to cultural constructions of gender just say, oh my goodness, they're so off-putting, they're just so obnoxious. But they had these, both of them had these incredible intellects. And that is what attracted C.S. Lewis to both of them, is that they could hold their own with Lewis and didn't need to use feminine wiles. And neither of them did. So Sayers also would I appreciate, and of course we don't have Joy's letters to Lewis, so we don't know exactly what she challenged him about. We know that there was give and take in their conversation. But Sayers actually challenged Lewis about his sexism, and she actually wrote this one letter to another woman writer. She said, do you like C.S. Lewis's work, or are you one of the people who foam at the mouth when they hear his name? I find most of his books very illuminating and stimulating, but I do admit that he is apt to write shocking nonsense about women and marriage. That, however, is not because he's a bad theologian, but because he's a rather frightened bachelor. So she was responding to his insight before he fell in love and married Joy Davidman. And, you know, he was no longer a frightened bachelor. Yeah, and I love how Dorothy says that Jesus would have treated women as if they had minds and souls of their own. Isn't that awesome? It just sounds like something Joy would say. There's almost this sense of rather than the shrinking violet woman that most of Lewis's peers wanted and expected in a woman and hence why they didn't like Joy, both Dorothy Sayers and Joy were willing to talk back to Lewis the way a mother would if they felt their son was saying something that was inappropriate or ill-informed. Can I add something to what she was saying about mother loss again? There's a strange incident in his 30s where Lewis and one of his friends were on a walking tour and they'd gotten all muddy. So they showed up at a pub that had rooms and the woman thought they were tramps. She said, if you go around to the back door, I'll give you some uh, leavings from the kitchen. 
And so rather than saying that they were two famous professors, they went around to the back door and waited for her to bring them a meal. And Lewis confided to his friend, there's some part of me that likes being ordered around by a woman. And once again, I think losing his mother, Mrs. Moore, who became his adoptive mother in his 20s and 30s and into his 40s, was a very take charge personality. And she often asked him to do domestic chores. And after she passed away and he met Joy, I think it's interesting that they got to know each other's minds first. There was a lot of correspondence. Mm -hmm. Lewis once said in his younger days that love was friendship plus physical attraction. And in some ways, that's the order in which he met Joy. They were intellectual friends before they met physically. But she was also very take charge. And here's these two bachelors who are very much living in this dilapidated house. And she immediately started making changes and carpeting and plastering and basically making it more habitable. And both brothers really loved her and responded to that. So there's always that element of intellectual companionship plus uh, love plus a kind of uh, alternative maternal presence in their lives. It's a very complicated relationship. Plus, C.S. Lewis's mother was brilliant. She had a degree in mathematics at a time when women not only didn't have degrees, but mathematics was not considered appropriate for women. I had a friend who was a mathematician at UCLA who was telling me about a new Barbie doll. And this was in the 1990s. It was a Barbie doll that you pulled the string and she spoke. And one of the things the Barbie doll said was, I hate mathematics. So (laughs) as late as the 1990s, that construction of gender was being perpetuated. So Lewis's mother, I bet, was an unusually brilliant woman. And that that probably informs the way he responded to both Dorothy Sayers and Joy Davidman. Mm -hmm. There are more and more intellectual women out there. But what stands out about Joy is how young she was when she started distinguishing herself. And she got her degree. I mean, this was an incredibly brilliant woman. And she was hanging out and having conversations with Bertolt Brecht and Langston Hughes, Richard Wright. I mean, all these famous authors. What I like about her is I don't sense any name dropping on her part. She just allowed her own. Her own name. Exactly. Joy didn't name drop about places like McDowell Artist Colony or how she won the Yale Younger Poets Award. She didn't walk around bragging. She wanted her work and her life to stand for itself. I feel like if she were alive today, one of the main things she would be known for is her actual work, not just being C.S. Lewis's wife. I think of what you said about her being so successful so young. Her first novel was critically acclaimed in her early 20s. She graduated with a graduate degree in a year and a half from Columbia. I have read parts of her thesis that she wrote when she was 19 years old. Yes, I think what she would have to say to us about breaking free of roles and of expected roles, and she would care more about the actual integrity of her work. Yeah, Mm -hmm. her own intellect to speak for itself rather than, well, you know, I once had a conversation with Bertolt Brecht, you know. It makes her so much like Dorothy Sayers. Sayers wanted to be known for the quality of her work, the integrity of her work. And in fact, when people would interview her and ask 
information about her personal life. She says, it's not about me. It is about the integrity of the work. And Sayers has a famous line that's the only Christian work is good work well done. And I think that's the frustration that Joy had and just why she just had to leave her sons behind to get out of America is that she was no longer able to do good work well done because of all these other responsibilities Mm. in her life. And I would add initiative um, going after what she wanted. I have a lot of students right now who are, especially female students, they're very conscientious and dutiful but they seem to be waiting for something to fall into their laps. And they're content to get good grades and hoping that that will lead to something wonderful. And I really like how Joy didn't wait for fortune to fall into her lap, both in her writing projects, even in traveling to England, uh, corresponding with Lewis. She had a kind of initiative and a drive that I think was an important part of her success. And I think that could be a good lesson for contemporary uh, young people, especially young women. Yes and yes. Joy as an example for young women today. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Drs. David and Crystal Downing. It has been an absolute honor getting to know Dorothy this way, and it makes me want to dig into her life even more so. You're right. I believe she totally paved the way for our beloved Joy. Now we're going to talk to Dr. Crystal Hurd. Her work and writings have focused on Lewis and his family. She's the author of several articles, and she is the reviews editor for Zainzut, the C.S. Lewis Journal. Crystal, in your essay on Joy's life, you call her the imitable wife, and I just love that. It actually would have been a great book title. You also have a great work called How Joy Davidman Shaped C.S. Lewis. I'm thrilled you're here with us. So let's start with Lewis's history and how, to me, it seems something greater set the stage for Joy to appear in his life. Flora, who was C.S. Lewis's mother, was not a conventional woman. Do you think she laid the groundwork for Joy? You write this, enduring intense criticism for her untraditional choices. So it sounds like someone else we know. You also say Flora was a domestic yet intellectual female. And though we make much of Joy's intellectual prowess, she also loved many aspects about domestic life. Joy knitted, she sewed, she loved redecorating the kilns. So Lewis's mother is described as loving, intelligent, sensitive, and observant. At first, I thought you might be describing Joy. No doubt. No doubt. Flora was an incredible young woman, incredible. And she, in many ways, and having read the Lewis papers through their family papers, their letters, she, even in responding, had unconventional, an unconventional perspective about life. She didn't just want to go be a housewife. She wanted to chase her dreams. She wanted to do, you know, big things. She was one of the first, you know, to graduate with a math degree from Queens. And I mean, that's an incredible thing. Only a few women were even allowed in that program. She was criticized for basically postponing a family and postponing, you know, having children to go after her degree. And that was um, incredibly unconventional. And even uh, I've talked about before how she dated Albert's brother for a while, and then they broke up. And even in the letter, she's not interested in in marrying. Um, She's not talking a whole lot about the conventional roles and what's expected of her. If anything, she was being 
criticized for waiting longer than a lot of women to chase those paths. And so even after she has both of her sons, she makes their intellectual development a priority as well as their spiritual development and, you know, teaches them to play chess and takes them around and shows them the different beaches and travels with them and introduces them to a whole lot of things that actually are echoed later in many of their works for both C.S. Lewis and his brother Warren. Lewis's father, Albert, pursued his wife, Flora, for a very long while before she relented and fell in love with him. And that scenario reminds me of the flip side, which is Joy loving Lewis, the woman loving the man, long before, and then they finally came to like minds through writing. How wonderful is that? It happened to Lewis's family, and then it happened to him. Oh, yeah. It's an interesting story. Albert, he was a a celebrated attorney in his time in Belfast. (laughs) He was so well known that newspapers even caricatured him. There were, you know, political cartoons with Albert in them. It's really neat. And so he was well known to basically slay people with words. Um, Incredibly intelligent man with a very robust vocabulary. So, um, When he had approached Flora, and we have those letters in the Lewis papers, she initially turned him down several times. He just continually said, you know, we can make this work. You know, I would really like this. And she turned him down very politely. And even at one point said, please don't make me be rude. I don't like you. So basically, here's what happened. It's so neat. Uh, Flora actually published a short story called The Princess Rosetta, which is now lost. We don't have that, unfortunately. But she published it in the Household Journal. And uh, Albert requested a copy. She sent it. And he sent her the letter back, which we have, just extolling how beautiful and wonderful it is and how she's an amazing writer. And as I've mentioned before, she was not the favorite child in her family. So she enjoyed the encouragement. She ended up you know, finally relenting. And after they started, you know, discussing writers like Ruskin, they basically started sharing letters about writing and writers' lives. And it basically just formed the the early seeds of their relationship was coming out of literature and writing. It's so interesting how our history feeds into the narrative of our lives. Can't we see how Lewis's history in literature, story, and myth sets the stage for Joy, who loved the exact same things. Lewis describes growing up with endless books, and Joy describes growing up in a home that was overrun with books. So similar. And Lewis's parents fell in love and became close during their letter writing, and then the same thing happened with Joy and Lewis. The echoes and the similarities are astounding. It really is. It's an incredible romantic story. I mean, for book nerds, it's an incredibly romantic story. Uh, it's incredible because in both situations, as you mentioned, um, there was some hesitancy in indulging that relationship, and, and it was really solidified through the written word. Lewis's mother died of cancer, and then Joy is diagnosed with cancer. I just find it so ironic that he once said that ever since his mother's death, he had searched for joy. Of course, he meant the emotion, but he found so much more. In your writing, Crystal, you used the phrase unrelenting wound about Lewis's mother's death. Do you think joy helped heal this unrelenting wound or made it even worse when she too was diagnosed with cancer? I feel like for Lewis, it was sort of revisiting that wound. He was very, very close to his mother because he was still pretty young when she passed. Uh, Warney, I think, had already been 
doing school at his age. And so Lewis was very close. C.S. Lewis was very close to his mother. When she was diagnosed, she had headaches a lot. We know that. And there were many times, even in the letters, where you know it says, oh, I wish I could have been there, but I was sick. And she was already suffering from additional ailments you know, that was later discovered to be cancer. You know, she actually underwent two different surgeries. The first one was earlier in 1908, and it was an exploratory surgery in which they uncovered that she had cancer, and then the later one to remove the cancer, and she, you know, died several months after that. There were some ups and downs, I think, with with his mother. Anytime that, and I think this is true with anyone who's suffering from a major illness, you go through points where you think it's going to get better and it's going to improve. And then you go through times where the diagnosis is worse. And so you, you have these oscillating emotions, you know, between joy and fear. And Lewis experienced that with his own mother because he, they really thought that she was going to, you know, she'd had all these ailments, but they thought, you know, maybe we can try to remove the cancer, right? And it was abdominal cancer, and uh, it was actually done in the home, a lot of, which is, I think, really interesting. They actually, they did the surgery on the dining room table, and uh, to me, it's interesting, I mean, because I think as a little boy, and I think we see this in uh, The Magician's Nephew, we want to heal, he wanted to heal his mother. In a way, when I read The Magician's Nephew, I think this is C.S. Lewis's way of reconciling what the university did to him, <laughs> you know, it was, it's a way of saying, this is a way I'm, I'm going to heal my mom, you know, at least in this story, the mother will be healed. And I feel like in a way that was him sort of trying to change the outcome of that as a boy. So when, when his own wife is diagnosed with it, I think it's kind of throws him back into those old emotions and he's reliving all of the mental torment of having someone you love being sick and you can't do anything about it. There's no magic apple. And, you know, with Joy, um, and you know this, but, you know, she kind of buoyed for a while. You know, she came back out. She got better for a little while. I think Lewis was like, oh, hey, you know, <laughs> this is what I wanted. You know, maybe I can rewrite this ending. And I think, you know, I think he wanted that so much for her that when she did pass away, that's where we get a grief observed. That's where we get the wonderful, you know, and painful reflections in A Grief Observed because he really wanted to change that ending, and yet again, he couldn't do it. So this seems to lay the road for Joy, prepare his heart in so many ways. One of the things when I talk to people about Lewis and women, or Lewis and Joy specifically, people say, why would Lewis want a woman like that? an ex-communist poet, and I'd say, why not? Uh, (laughs) I mean, she was an incredibly interesting figure, a very good blend like his mother was. So I feel like, yeah, I think she did kind of fill that void for a while. He mentions in a letter, I think it was the 1950s, uh, where, where he says, you know, there's a lot about Mamie's little lost boy that is still in me. And that was written, I think, right before he and Joy embarked on a relationship. I think it surprised him (laughs) more than anyone, that he would end up in a relationship. But I do think that she really did kind of heal those healing of harms, you know, the healing of the old wounds when she showed up because he was was very surprised by it. His friends were surprised by it. But I think a lot of us who know Joy are not a bit surprised. So let's talk about the name-calling, all the things that people around called Joy. Sassy, impertinent, brash, shrew— When you and I would call her courageous, brave, forthright, interesting, brilliant, 
So why do you think this name-calling has happened, and why do you think it has stuck through the years? I often feel really defensive of Joy, especially those who say she pushed herself on him. So that's why I love this quote of yours, Crystal. Although many maintain that Joy forced herself on Lewis because she needed financial assistance, these visits were always prompted by Lewis, not by Joy. Wow. Um, I think it was his other half. Not to sound cliche, <laughs> I read and wrote a lot about Lewis's perspective of women, being a woman myself. I was really curious because I heard all the indictments about Lewis being a misogynist and not liking women. And then I, then I started researching the women in his life and realized that there's no way. He was an incredible lover of all things. And especially, I mean, he did enjoy women. And his, his mother was an intellectual. His aunt was a little bit of a kook, but she was, uh, you know, well-known, really smart, really outspoken, very smart. His grandmother was very outspoken and clashed with her son-in-law, Albert, on some items in politics in Belfast at the time. So it was, they were all actually very outspoken women. So do you think that's why Joy was shunned by the Oxford set, most notably Tolkien? Do you think it would be different today? And how do you think that made Jack feel? Did he even care? Did it take him longer to fall in love because of that? That's a really complicated question. I think, in my humble opinion, I think that a lot of people look at C.S. Lewis as an ordinary saint. He's sort of a spiritual figure, you know, and he was unmarried. He was kind of like a Paul, you know, situation. He was, you know, writing all this great stuff. And when women came into the picture, um, that was something that was pulling his time and attention. I, I know the Inklings, some members of the Inklings were a little concerned because he was home more, you know, because he had a wife and he had things he had to do at home, which if you go back and look at Lewis's history, I mean, Mrs. Moore kept him probably under more household chores than any female <laughs> in his entire life. I mean, he was strapped uh, to domestic duties all the time. It's a wonder he got anything written. You know, I don't know. I think maybe because her um, temperament was different than a typical female was expected to have during that time. Again, the quiet, demure wife, that's not something that C.S. Lewis grew up with. You know, I mean, he grew up with intelligent, sharp, insightful women. And why would he marry a dull one <laughs> when he can have a, a fireball of <laughs> a woman enjoy? I think you know, one of the things I love about C.S. Lewis is that he doesn't compartmentalize his life. Spirituality blends everything. You know, intellect blends everything. You know, that's one of the things when I did my dissertation that people said his way of integrating faith and intellect and imagination is just seamless. And it's hard to do that. And so, you know, when I look at C.S. Lewis in the way of his relationships, he doesn't compartmentalize there either. He's selecting a woman who can, you know, have great arguments with, who he can play, you know, word games with, whom he can have edit his work and trust her opinion. He wanted an intellectual equal. And that's what he found in Joy. And perhaps some men, you know, didn't want that. I, I really can't accurately say out of in, in my context as a female today. But, you know, perhaps, you know, he, most men wanted a trophy wife or something. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and C.S. Lewis would not, and if you've read enough of him, you know, he would never, never cater to any kind of something that was culturally appealing. Many people are proprietary about Lewis. You know, he's mine. He's mine. And 
I think what what happens is that fosters this sense of, well, he wouldn't do that because I don't think he would do that. And I think that's where people sort of projecting their opinions and their beliefs and their persuasions on this figure that, you know, they agree with on a lot of things. But, you know, Lewis was a human being and um, he was a human being who wanted love like the rest of us. I think he fought it as hard as he could. (laughs) But, you know, if we're honest, his own conversion was kind of the same way. The most reluctant convert in all of England, he put up a really good fight for God, (laughs) you know, to accept God. And so why why wouldn't he, you know, show that same reluctance in love, which he kind of did, but but Joy was so strong and so consistent, and she knew what she wanted. And that's what I love about her. That's what I loved about, you know, some of the women in his family when I study them and I read Flora's letters. They are, you know, like-minded. You know, he was very like-minded, I mean, with her. They were kind of equals in that way. So what would Joy tell us today? Well, A couple of quick things, I think. Uh, One, I think she would encourage us to keep moving, to never stop, or or even when you meet a criticism or adversity, to push through it. I had somebody ask me once uh, when I was on a panel, what do you have to say to female scholars? And I basically say, well, what you would say to male scholars. (laughs) (laughs) You know, be patient, be observant, and obey God. Among all that, I mean, like that's the premier thing. If God tells you to do something, you do it. You know, Joy began to love a God that she grew up hating through C.S. Lewis's writings. And, you know, when you read like her book on the Ten Commandments, there's so many great things in that book that, you know, she was basically kind of a an infant toddler Christian at that point when she was writing it. And she has much to say to us, you know, to many of us who are veteran Christians in that book about what God says and how how to live our lives. And so I think the first thing she would tell us is uh, no matter who you are, um, no matter what your gender is, be encouraged and continue forward and don't give up. In her relationships and her art, she learned and evolved and grew and and developed and um, I mean even when she when she got to England she was you know researching Charles Williams and she hadn't been writing a lot of poetry you know she did write some but just incredible work you know and she was working on on some books you know that never came to fruition but she was growing as a scholar out of being a poet into you know new things so I think she would just encourage us to follow our heart and to do the best work that God has set before us Their love story just seems one for the ages. Well, love conquers all is probably the first thing that I think of. Again, I think so many people were opposed to it because she seemed so dissimilar to him. But really, you know, C.S. Lewis is a human being. And sometimes when people get get, um, famous, they develop into a myth and they cease to be human. When we talk about this with celebrities and past presidents and things like that, they sort of become a myth. They pass into this sort of mythological condition, which is bad because myths aren't real people. They're constructed ideals of people. And what Joy represents for us is C.S. Lewis, the man, C.S. Lewis, the husband, C.S. Lewis, the son. And a lot of people want to feed that ideal. They want to feed that myth. Because look at all these great books and look at mere mere Christianity shaped my faith more than just about anything I've ever read in my entire life. And um, I look up to that work as sort of a seminal work of theology and spirituality. But I also know that the man who wrote it is a human and he was a human 
he wasn't this other. <laughs> and again, what I like about Joy and why we love this story is because it is such a beautiful story. Honestly, it sounds like a book right off the shelf. It really does. Yeah. I mean, he was a confirmed bachelor, right? And here was a divorcee. They're from two different countries, two different technical denominations, I would say. I mean, you know, she was technically raised Jewish. It was just a meeting of opposites. There's a hundred ways it could have went. It went poorly. I think their love story is, for me, it's an absolutely amazing illustration of how God works in people's lives and how transformational that love can be. And I'm not talking about human love or eros, you know, when we're talking about C.S. Lewis's four loves, I'm, I'm talking about this God love, this encompassing love that outstrips everything, that makes everything that we have on this earth just seem like a poor reflection of what really awaits us. So you have these two very reluctant converts, and they are changed, and they're changed by each other. And to me, it's just this perfect trifecta, you know, of God's love and God's love for us and our love for each other. So to me, that story is, like I said, it almost sounds fictional, but God writes the best love stories. So there you go. Crystal, what a perfect way to end. God writes the best love stories. So next episode, we'll be talking about Joy as both muse and co-author. How much did she contribute to Lewis's work, and why wasn't she given the credit until now? I will be talking with Andrew Lazo, scholar and seminarian who has spent the last decade deeply researching Joy's influence on Lewis's work. Make sure to subscribe to Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis wherever you get your podcasts. You can find the novel and audiobook wherever books are sold, published by HarperCollins' Thomas Nelson. You've been listening to the Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis podcast, copyright 2019 by Thomas Nelson, based on the book Becoming Mrs. Lewis, the Improbable Love Story of Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis, copyright 2018 by Thomas Nelson. Poetry selections by Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis, read by Liz Hill and Simon Bubb. No portion of this recording may be used without the express written consent of the publisher. For more information on the people and stories featured in this episode, please visit becomingmrslewispodcast.com. This program was engineered by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at Kingswood Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, and produced by Jolene Bartow and Gabe Wicks.